How successfully have authorities contained the threats associated with the eight-year-old Fukushima Daiichi nuclear meltdowns? How reliable are Japanese government claims that the country will be safe for next year's Olympic Games? Is there documented evidence that health authorities knowingly misled the Japanese people about the health threat coming from the meltdowns? Are there parallels between responses to the Fukushima disaster and those to the 40-year-old Three Mile Island disaster? On a week marking the 8th anniversary of the earthquake and triple nuclear meltdown of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear facility, the Global Research News Hour provides analysis and commentary with experts who have been following the impacts and the ways in which regulatory, government and other agencies have responded. Our first guest, Dr. Helen Caldicott, brings us up to speed on the likely repercussions to human health flowing from the disaster. In our second half hour, Arnie Gunderson address the flaws in radiation monitoring and the cover-ups to protect the industry. On this week's program, Fukushima at 8, ongoing cover-up of the nuclear hazards in Japan and abroad. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March 15, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. If the intervention now being prepared for is not halted, there will be dramatic consequences for the people of Venezuela, for the entire continent, and internationally. The Latin American governments who are allied with Washington against Venezuela are ultra-reactionary. The very names of heads of state such as Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, Maurizio Macri in Argentina, Ivan Duque in Colombia, Jimmy Morales in Guatemala, Martin Vizcarra, in Peru, Juan Carlos Varela in Panama and Sebastián Piñera in Chile are synonymous with reactionism. And of course, the European powers in a parade led by France, Germany and UK and Spain. The UK and Spain, fearful that they might miss an opportunity to get a piece of Venezuela's natural wealth, have rushed to get in line behind the United States and recognize Guaido. The former colonial powers must be denounced for conducting such policies while at the same time not hesitating for a moment to lend their support to true dictatorships like that of Abdel Fattah el-Sisi in Egypt, Idris Deby in Chad, and Mohammed Ben Salman in Saudi Arabia, who is killing the people of Yemen and had an opposition journalist literally butchered in his embassy in Istanbul. That comes from the article, Venezuela, Suspend Debt Repayments and Create an Emergency Humanitarian Fund by Eric Toussaint. Posted March 13th, originally published at the site of the Committee for the Abolition of Illegitimate Debt. The Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, which designed the Canada Infrastructure Bank, has predicted a global water market worth $1 trillion 
by 2020. Obviously, SNC-Lavalin wants to be in on all that MCS hydroelectric development and other projects to be financed by Trudeau's Canada Infrastructure Bank in the coming years. But if they have to face prosecution, the company risks being barred from federal contracts for 10 years. The Trudeau government says it is attempting to protect SNC-Lavalin jobs. That may be true, but it is also likely that the Trudeau government is attempting to protect its long-term vision for Canada, a vision that jettisons reconciliation and the environment in favor of damming the country and then draining it. That comes from the article, Canada's SNC-Lavalin Affair, the Site C Dam Project and Bulk Water Export, by Joyce Nelson, posted March 13th. According to a report examining the Iron Dome project, the United States has already provided at least $5.5 billion of the development costs of the system since it was first proposed in 2010. In 2018, Congress provided an additional $705 million to the Israeli government for various missile defense projects, which included Iron Dome. That means that Washington is buying back a system that it paid to develop and is therefore paying for it twice. This is a wonderful way to do business for Israel, but it is a complete ripoff of the American taxpayer. The fact that no one in Congress is complaining is perhaps attributable to the willingness of the government to do favors for Israel, including favors that undercut the U.S.'s own defense industries, as Israel will undoubtedly use reports of the sale to boost its own efforts to market the product worldwide. That comes from the article, Buying Back the Iron Dome from Israel. U.S. taxpayers are being ripped off as U.S. Army buys back what we paid to develop. But Philip Giraldi, posted March 13th, originally published on American Free Press. When it comes to safety in the aviation industry, powerful players tend to monetize rather than humanize their passengers. A company like Boeing is seen as much as a patriot of the U.S. defense industry as a producer of passenger aircraft. The company's presence in Washington is multiple and vast, characterized by the buzzing activity of some two dozen in-house lobbyists and 20 lobbying firms. Lobbyists such as John Keast, a former principal at Cornerstone Government Affairs, have links with lawmakers such as Senator Roger Wicker of Mississippi, nurtured since the days he was chief of staff. Wicker's spokeswoman, Brianna Manzelli, was, however, keen to narrow that influence supposedly wielded by Keist in a statement made to CNN. That comes from the article, Boeing's 737 MAX 8, Lobbies and Belated Groundings, by Dr. Benoit Campmark, posted March 14th. The CIA is conspiring with ISIS commanders in northeastern Syria, supplying them with fake documents and then transferring them to Iraq, according to reports in Turkish pro-government media. About 2,000 ISIS members were questioned in the areas of Kesra, Busera, Al-Omar and Suwayr in Deir Azor province, and at least 140 of them then received fake documents. Some of the questioned terrorists were then moved to the camps of Al-Hol, Hasaka, and Rukban, which are controlled by U.S.-backed forces. The CIA also reportedly created a special facility near Abu Kashab with the same purpose. Israeli, French, and British special services are reportedly involved. That comes from the article under the headline, Video CIA is turning refugee camps in eastern Syria into ISIS hotbeds, Turkish media reports. Posted March 14th, originally published at South Front. 
institutions within capitalist countries, including government ministries, defense forces, intelligence agencies, judiciary, universities, and representative bodies recognize to varying degrees that the overriding demands of transnational capital spill beyond the boundaries of nation-states. The resulting worldwide reach motivates a new form of global imperialism that is evident by coalitions of core capitalist nations engaged in past and present regime change efforts via sanctions, covert actions, co-options, and war with non-cooperating nations. Iran, Iraq, Syria, Libya, Venezuela, Cuba, North Korea, and Russia. The attempted coup in Venezuela shows the alignment of transnational capital supporting states in recognizing the elite forces that oppose Maduro's socialist presidency. A new global imperialism is at work here, whereby Venezuela's sovereignty is openly undermined by a capital imperial world order that seeks not just control of Venezuela's oil, but a full opportunity for widespread investments through a new regime. The widespread corporate media negation of the democratically elected president of Venezuela demonstrates that these media are owned and controlled by ideologists for the global power elite. That comes from the article, Wealth Concentration Drives... A New Global Imperialism by Peter Phillips, posted March 14th. Policies accelerating debt-based income transfer since 2001 have been expanding and deepening since 2000 across both Republican and Democrat regimes, from Bush through Obama, now accelerating even faster under Trump. For consumer and household debt, clearly the working class, middle class, pays most of the interest on the debt via mortgage, auto, student, and credit cards, rising state and local taxation, more federal taxation paying for the Trump tax cuts, etc. The federal government and thus the taxpayer pay the interest on the government bond debt. The creditors and owners of the debt reap the benefits now in the trillions of dollars annually. The Trump budget proposes to pay for the U.S. government's share of the total debt by transferring the cost of financing military defense spending and tax cutting, which creates more deficit and debt to those households who aren't investors and business owners. That comes from the article, Trump's $34 trillion deficit and debt bomb, by Dr. Jack Rasmus, posted March 14th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. It was on Friday, March 11, 2011, that a magnitude 9.0-9.1 earthquake led to a tsunami which devastated the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear facility. The event resulted in 16,000 deaths, causing some 165,000 people to flee their homes in the Fukushima area. Radioactive material is known to have entered the atmosphere in plumes spreading across the Pacific and into North America. Radioactive water was and continues to be dumped into the Pacific Ocean creating an ongoing radiative hazard. As reported on the Global Research NewsHour, authorities have underplayed the damage and radiological contamination which resulted. On the eighth anniversary of the disaster, we get updates from two prominent experts who've been debunking much of the statements by the Japanese government and health authorities. We start with well-known anti-nuclear campaigner, Dr. Helen Caldicott. 
Well, I'm joined right now by a past guest. Dr. Helen Caldicott has been an author, physician, and one of the world's leading anti-nuclear campaigners. She helped to reinvigorate the group Physicians for Social Responsibility, acting as president from 1978 to 1983. Since its founding in 2001, she served as president of the U.S.-based Nuclear Policy Research Institute, later called Beyond Nuclear, which initiates symposia and educational projects aimed at informing the public about the dangers of nuclear power, nuclear weapons, and nuclear war. And uh, she is the editor of the 2014 book, Crisis Without End, The Medical and Ecological Consequences of the Fukushima Nuclear Catastrophe. She joins us now on a week marking the eighth anniversary of the Fukushima disaster. It's great to have you back on the show, uh, Dr. Caldicott. Thank you. Now, the Japanese government is preparing to welcome visitors to Japan for the 2020 Olympic Games, and uh, coverage of the 8th anniversary of the Fukushima disaster uh, is hardly, it seems to me, registered, given the, the significant radiological and other dangers uh, that you cited uh, and, and your authors cited in your 2014 book, uh, Crisis Without End. Uh, now, it's been more than four years since that book came out. I was hoping you could update our lit our listenership on uh, what uh, is currently being recognized as the main health threats uh, in 2019, uh, perhaps not registered in in the book that that you're currently looking at in relation to the Fukushima meltdowns. Well, it's difficult because the Japanese government has authorized really only examination of thyroid cancer. Now, thyroid cancer is caused by radioactive iodine, and, and there are many, many cases of that after Chernobyl. Um, and already uh, they look, they've looked at children under the age of 18 in the uh, Fukushima prefecture at the time of the accident. And uh, how many children? Um, hundred and No, 2001, by June 18th of last year, 2001, had developed thyroid cancer. Some cancers had metastasized. The incidence of thyroid cancer in that population normally is, is one per million. So obviously there's an epidemic of thyroid cancer, and it's just starting now. What people need to understand is the latent period of carcinogenesis, i.e. the time after exposure to radiation um, when cancers develop is any time from, oh, three years, to 80 years, and so it's a very, very long period. Thyroid cancers appear early. Leukemia appears about five to ten years later. They're not looking for leukemia. Um, solid cancers of every organ or any organ start to appear about 15 years later and continue, and in fact, the, the uh, Hibakusha from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, who are still alive, are, are still developing cancers in higher than normal numbers. Um, the, uh, the Japanese government has told doctors that they're not to talk to their patients about radiation and uh, illnesses derived thereof. And in fact, if the doctors do do that, they might lose their funding from the government. Um, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, interestingly set up a hospital, a cancer hospital in Fukushima, along with the Fukushima uh, University uh, for people with, with cancer, which tells you everything. So there's a huge, huge cover-up 
Um, I have been to Japan twice, and particularly to Fukushima, and spoken to people there, and the, the parents are desperate to hear the truth, even if it's not good truth. Um, and they thank me for telling them the truth. So it's an absolute medical catastrophe, I would say, um, and a total cover-up to protect the the nuclear industry and all its ramifications. Mm. Now, are we talking about some of the the, the, the contamination that happened uh, uh, eight years ago, or are we talking about ongoing emissions uh, from, for example, well, the water? Well, there are ongoing emissions um, into the air consistently, number one. Number two... Um, a huge amount of water um, is being stored over a million gallons in tanks at the site. That water is being siphoned off from the reactor cores, the damaged, melted cores. Water is pumped consistently every day, every hour, to keep the cores cool in case they have another melt. Um, and that water, of course, is extremely contaminated. Now, they say they've They've filtered out the contaminants except for tritium, which is part of the water molecule, but they haven't. There's strontium, cesium, and many other elements in that water. It's highly radioactive. And because there isn't enough room to build more tanks, they're talking about emptying all that water into the Pacific Ocean, and the fishermen are very, very upset. Um, the fish already being caught off Fukushima, some are, are obviously are, are contaminated, but this will be a disaster. Um, water comes down from the mountains behind the reactors, flows underneath the reactors into the sea and always has. And when the reactors were um, in good shape, uh, the water was fine, didn't get contaminated. But now the three molten cores are in contact with that water flowing under the reactors. And so the water fly flowing into the Pacific is very radioactive, and that's a separate thing from the million gallons or more in those tanks. Um, they put up a refrigerated wall of frozen dirt uh, around the reactors um, to prevent that water from the mountains flowing underneath the reactors, which has cut down the amount of water flowing per day from 500 tonnes to about 150. But, of course, if they lose electricity, that, that refrigeration system is going to fail. And it's a transient thing anyway, so it's, 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 it's ridiculous. Um, in terms... So, so the, over time, the Pacific is going to become more and more radioactive. They talk about decommissioning and removing those molten cores, when robots go in and try and have a look at them, their wiring just melts and disappears. They're extraordinarily radioactive. No human can go near them because they would die within 48 hours from the radiation exposure. They will never, and I quote, never decommission those reactors. Um, they will never be able to stop the water coming down from the mountains. Um, and so... The truth be known, it's an ongoing global radiological catastrophe, which no one really is addressing in full. Mm. Do we have a better reading, like, for example, with the, the, the thyroids, but also leukemia, incubation? No, period? they're not looking. Well, leukemia, they're not looking for leukemia. Just thyroid. They're not, 
charting it. So the only cancer they're looking at is thyroid cancer, and that's really high. Uh, you know, 201 um, have already been diagnosed, and some have metastasized. Um, and and uh, a, a very tight lid is being kept on any other sort of radiation-related rela- ra- illnesses, all other cancers and the like, and leukemia. So it's... <laughs> It's not just a catastrophe, it's... Um, Cover-up. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> just... I, I can't really explain how I feel medically about it. It's just hideous. Well, I I have a brother who's a, a physician, and uh, he was pointing to, well, we should uh, maybe... that The World Health Organization is a fairly authoritative body of research for uh, all of the uh, the indicators and the, the epidemiological... Uh, aspects of this, but uh, you seem to suggest that World Health Organizations may not be that reliable in, 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 in light of the fact that uh, they've partnered with the IAEA. Is, is that my Correct. understanding? Correct. They signed a document, I think in 59, that with the IAEA that they would not report any medical effects of radiological disasters, um, and they've stuck to that. So they are, in effect in this area, uh, part of the International Atomic Energy Agency whose mission is to promote nuclear power. So don't even think about the WHO. It's really obscene. Mm. So, I mean, what the incentive would be simply that they got funding, or how did that... What, what is I don't the know. No, no idea. I, I really don't know, but they've sold their soul to the devil. That's pretty incredible. Um, so we, we uh, there's also the the issue of biomagnification in the oceans, uh, yeah. where you have uh, the, the radioactive degree, uh, you know, hundreds of tons uh, of this radioactive water getting into the uh, uh, into the oceans and uh, bag- biomagnifying up up through the food chain, so these radioactive particles can get inside our bodies. And and, and could you speak to uh, what you anticipate to see, what you would anticipate, whether it's recorded by World Health Authorities or not, what we could expect to see in the years ahead in terms of the uh, illnesses that manifest themselves. Well, number one, Fukushima is a very agricultural prefecture. Beautiful, beautiful peaches and and beautiful food and lots of rice. Um, And the radiation spread far and wide through the Fukushima prefecture. And indeed, they've been ploughing up millions and millions of tonnes of radioactive dirt and storing it in plastic bags all over the prefecture. The mountains are highly radioactive, um, and every time it rains down comes the radiation with the water. Uh, so, so the radiation, the elements, and there are over 200 radioactive elements made in a nuclear reactor. Some have lives of seconds, and some have lives of millions of years or last for millions of years, will I say. And so there are many, many isotopes, long-lasting isotopes, cesium, strontium, and tritium is another one, um, but many, many on the soil in Fukushima. And what happens is, you talked about biomagnification, when the plants take up the water from the soil, they take up the cesium, which is a potassium analogue, it resembles potassium, Strontium-90 resembles calcium and the like. And these elements get magnified by orders of magnitude in the rice and in the plants. And so when you eat food that is grown in Fukushima, uh, the chances are it's going to be relatively radioactive. They've been diluting radioactive rice 
with non-radioactive rice to make it seem a bit better. Now, into the ocean go these isotopes as well, and the algae biomagnify them by, you know, 10 to 100 times or more, and then the crustaceans eat the algae biomagnified more, the little fish eat the crustaceans, the big fish eat the little fish, and the like. And tuna found in off the coast in California some years ago contained isotopes from Fukushima. Uh, also, fish being caught uh, on the coast, west coast of California contain some of these isotopes. So it's an ongoing um, biomagnification catastrophe. And the thing is that you can't taste, smell, or see radioactive elements in your food. Uh, they're, they're, they're invisible. Uh, and it takes a long time for cancers to occur. And you can't identify a particular cancer caused by a particular substance or isotope. You can only um, identify that problem by doing epidemiological studies comparing irradiated people with non-irradiated people to see what the cancer levels are. And that data come from Hiroshima and Nagasaki and many, many, many other studies. Chernobyl as well, no? Oh, Chernobyl. Well, a wonderful book was produced by the... Uh, Russians and published by the New York Academy of Sciences called Chernobyl with, with over 5,000 on-the-ground studies of children and diseases uh, in Belarus and the Ukraine and all over Europe. And by now, over a million people have already died from the Chernobyl disaster. And many diseases have been caused by that, including premature aging in children, microcephaly in babies, very small heads, diabetes, leukemia, I mean, I could go on and on. Um, and those diseases, which have been very well described in that wonderful book, um, which everyone should read, uh, are not being addressed or identified or looked for in the Fukushima or Japanese population. May I say that parts of Tokyo are extremely radioactive. People have been measuring the dirt from roofs of apartments, from the roadway, um, from vacuum cleaner dust, and some of these samples, they're so radioactive that they would classify to be buried in radioactive waste facilities in America. So that's number one. Um, number two, to have the Olympics in Fukushima is just defies, defies imagination. And uh, the, some of the areas where the athletes are going to be running... Uh, the dust and dirt there has been measured and it's highly radioactive. So this is Abe, the Prime Minister of Japan, who set this up to, as a sort of a way to um, obscure uh, what Fukushima really means. And those young athletes, you know, who are... And young people are much more sensitive to radiation and developing cancers later than, than older people. It's just a catastrophe. Dr. To happen. Dr. Caldecott, they're calling it the radioactive Olympics. <laughs> Is there anything that uh, people can do? Uh, you know, whether they live in Japan or, or say the the west coast of North America, to to mitigate uh, the the effects that this uh, this disaster has have it has had and may still be having eight years later. Yes. Do not eat any Japanese food because you don't know where it's sourced. Do not eat. Fish from Japan, miso, rice, you name it. Do not eat Japanese food, period. Um, fish caught off the west coast of Canada and 
America, well, they're not testing the fish, so I, I don't know what you'd do. Um, I mean, most of it's probably not radioactive, but you, you don't know because you can't taste it. Um, they've closed down the airborne radioactive measuring instruments off the west coast of America, uh, but that's pretty bad because there still could be another huge accident at those reactors. For instance, if there's another large earthquake, number one, all those tanks would be destroyed and the water would pour into the Pacific. Number two, there could be another um, meltdown or release huge release of radiation um, from the damaged reactors. So the things are very tenuous, but they're not just tenuous now. They're going to be tenuous forever. Dr. Hal Caldicott, it's, it's been good to hear from you. Uh, thank you so much for, for sharing those thoughts and your expertise with our audience. Thank you, Mark. Bye-bye. We've been speaking with physician, author, and longtime anti-nuclear campaigner, Dr. Helen Caldicott. She joined us from her home outside Sydney, Australia. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Fairwinds Energy Education is a 501c3 nonprofit organization founded in 2008 by Maggie Gunderson, a journalist, paralegal, and former atomic power industry spokesperson. Her husband, Arnie Gunderson, is the chief engineer for Fairwinds Associates, Inc., Fairwinds defines itself as a hub for fact-based, undistorted information about nuclear power with a mission to inform and educate people around the world, legislative officials, and members of the press concerning the scientific and economic issues relating to the production of electricity and the sources of energy used to create power. Arnie Gunderson blew the whistle on the nuclear industry 30 years ago and has since been critical of the industry's tendency to advance its interests at the expense of human health and protection of the environment. Arnie Gunderson is a former senior vice president of uh, nuclear industry, and uh, he's a for- been very uh, outspoken uh, over the years on the Fukushima uh, incident itself. Arnie, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks. I'm glad I could come. Now, this week, as you know, is the eighth anniversary of the Fukushima Daiichi meltdowns. Uh, Could you speak, first of all, to some of the most significant actions taken by the Japanese government, uh, nuclear regulators, and health authorities to deliberately mislead the public about the dangers posed by the meltdowns, as well as as compromise their safety? You know, I had a... um, I traveled frequently with uh, former Japanese Prime Minister Naoto Kan. He was in charge of um, Japan when uh, when the tsunami and meltdowns occurred, and I, I talked to him about uh, just this very topic. And you know, So this is the top dog in Japan, and he said to me, um, Arnie, the information I received was neither timely nor accurate. So this is the top dog in Japan, and his own regulator, uh, a group called METI, M-E-T-I, and Tokyo Electric were not telling him the truth. So I think what you've got is a uh, is an orthodoxy. You've got a an atomic priesthood, if you will. And when the um, orthodoxy is questioned, they circle the wagons and don't um, and don't tell the truth to the highest elected officials in the land. Um, same thing happened at, at Three Mile Island for a while. Um, 
as well. Well, you were so, part of that orthodoxy <laughs> at, yep. at one point. I mean, when in uh, you know thirty years ago, you you before then you had been part of that uh, priesthood, as you call it. Yes, I was. Um, I had an, a separate conversation with Governor Thornburg uh, five years ago at the thirty-fifth uh, commemoration of the TMI meltdowns, and Thornburg was the guy running Pennsylvania at the time. He was the governor. And I said to him, you know, Governor Thornburg, you were lied to. And there was this pause for like 10 seconds, and he looks at me and he smiles. He says, yeah, I was lied to. So uh, here's a, another example of, um, of the orthodoxy, the nuclear industry, uh, lying to public officials. And, and you're right, I was part of that orthodoxy 30 years ago. I saw... Uh, I was on television saying nothing happened, um, everybody's fine, uh, yada, yada, yada. And I didn't do my own research in that. I just ex accepted what um, the higher-ups had told me, almost like a, an orthodoxy. You know, the, the, the priests line up to what the Pope said. Well, it's like that. And it was only in uh, 1990 when I was fired as a nuclear whistleblower that I began to uh, question the orthodoxy, uh, sort of like a, a defrocked priest. And, and Maggie and I saw the same thing happening at, at Fukushima. We, we, we saw um, uh, the lies, the, the fact that they said, oh, don't worry, no radiation is getting out. Um, they actually had radiation pills available to uh, limit the iodine uptake in, in thyroids, and they refused to give them out. Um, I was on television. Uh, I, I committed myself then. Maggie and I both committed ourselves uh, to uh, uh, to preventing um, the, the playbook that worked so well on TMI um, to be used again at Fukushima. And, um, and to a degree, I think we've been successful. Hmm. Now, you yourself have, have taken Geiger counter readings throughout Japan, and, and what are some of the uh, more astonishing revelations that you've registered about the ongoing radiation danger? The, um, uh, I have an um, entry-level professional Geiger counter. It's like a you know, $1,000 Geiger counter called an inspector by IMI, um, and um, it measures radiation coming up from the ground, um, almost like x-ray from, you know, being x-rayed. It measures the cesium giving off radiation from the ground. So that allows me to determine what radiation is entering my body and entering other people's bodies. But it, it doesn't tell the whole story. And, and I think that's a critical thing to talk about in this, um, now that we're eight years out. The, the, the Japanese government is releasing people to go back into areas when their handheld Geiger counters show um, radiation uh, at, uh, at, at uh, 20 rem uh, of radiation, which is um, 20 times higher than what it had been previously. So what, uh, but, but what's happening is they're ignoring the, the thing that we found not with our Geiger counter, but when we took the samples back to the lab, uh, Dr. Marco Caltofan and I uh, discovered that there's a lot more in these samples than, um, than cesium. And there's a lot more to the discussion than radiation coming from the ground. The, the key is the uh, hot particles, the, the very small nano-sized particles uh, 
millionths of a, of a meter that get stirred up and, uh, and inhaled or imbibed that then lodge in kidneys or livers or lungs and over a period of years cause, uh, uh, cause cancers. Mm. So you don't pick those particles up with the handheld detector. But the handheld detector gets you in an area where there might be particles, and then we take them to a lab. Um, and the devices we use at the lab are, you know, the, a scanning electron microscope is a million-dollar machine. It costs $300 an hour to run. So it's extraordinarily expensive and, uh, and difficult for citizens to, uh, to do adequate science. These uh, hot particles, they don't, I mean, they, they do migrate. It's not like, okay, we have the meltdown and then they just spread out and we can map where it was and, and clean it up. I mean, they, they may remain mobile, do they not? Yes, they do. You know, I was in uh, Minamisoma. Uh, Minamisoma is a, a large town that had been evacuated and then, um, quote, cleaned by Tokyo Electric and people came back in. And I was on the roof of the Minami Soma Town Hall, so it's four stories high. And they had completely cleaned the roof, uh, put a beautiful epoxy coating on the roof, and then put solar collectors on the roof all after the meltdown. And I went over and found a, a you know a pile of dirt that had collected on the roof and took a sample, and it was highly radioactive. So the question is, how can four stories high uh, become contaminated after the entire town has been cleaned? And the answer is it's blowing back in on the dust. Um, 95% or more of Fukushima Prefecture has not been cleaned, the, the, the mountains. And actually, they only clean 50 feet on either side of the, of the roads. So I walked back 90 feet, uh, 30 meters off the, uh, off the road, and found incredibly high radiation readings. So the cleanup is first measured with these uh, the handheld devices, and secondly, the, the, um, there's no accounting for the internal exposure, the dust that these people are um, are breathing in day in day out. I've, I've heard you've heard the expression uh, "too big to fail." I mean, it was ref in reference to the uh, the subprime mortgage scandal and the companies that were bailed out. Uh, too big to fail, and it sounds from what I've heard and and, and read that uh, the nuclear industry is 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 protected even at the expense of the health of the public. As you know, Fukushima being a, an example, could you maybe? go into a little bit of uh, detail about some of the ways in which the protections of the industry are not just human error, but built into the system itself. I think that's really the, the entire key to nuclear power, is that the, um, um, the, these plants are extraordinarily costly to build. Um, the, the latest one down here in Georgia that's still uh, um, five years from being constructed there's going to be $30 billion when it's, when it's complete. Um, but Three Mile Island was a billion, and, uh, uh, and many other plants were too. So the, the loss of a single asset, um, Three Mile Island Unit 2, is, um, is something the banking system and, uh, um, and the country can withstand. But if you were serious, you would shut down 
all the nukes. And now you're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars, which is something that neither the nuclear industry nor the banking industry and, of course, their, their lobbyists on Congress are, um, are willing to allow to, uh, to happen. So they hire um, uh, scientists who agree with them to turn out papers that agree with them, uh, which, which makes Fairwinds unique in this, uh, in this uh, sphere. Uh, we're publishing, uh, as, as we can afford, we're, we're publishing papers that counter the, uh, the orthodoxy. Hmm. Now, in the States, they, we have um, the uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and it's five commissioners running a staff of a couple thousand engineers. And all five of those commissioners are vetted by NEI, which is the Nuclear Energy Institute, which is the nuclear industry's lobbying arm. So the guard dogs are being appointed by the people they're supposed to be guarding. And, I, and, and that's true in Canada, too. You know, I was up there in, uh, um, in Toronto discussing uh, the nuclear plants Pickering that's very near to Toronto. And um, uh, I had the same belligerent attitude from the regulator in, in, uh, in, in Canada that I have down here. I was somehow uh, against the orthodoxy. Therefore, I was wrong. Um, it's, um, it has morphed into a, um, um, a, 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 a clique of, uh, of people that agree on a set of, uh, of standards and can't think outside the box. And I think that's what Fairwinds does. We think outside the box. Going back to the specific example of Fukushima, now we're talking about, you know, an attitude so favorable that they'll build nuclear reactors on an earthquake zone. And I mean, that that would, most people would find, uh, is that such a good idea? But uh, I think the, the argument was that the industry was clearly saying is that this earthquake is safe. And, and as I recall, uh, the authorities were saying that uh, with regard to uh, the Fukushima reactors that the earthquake didn't do any damage. It was just the tsunami. Uh, so just to maybe you know, provide us some uh, understanding, I mean, do we know uh, that uh, the earthquake did no damage to the, uh, to the, uh, the reactors? The, by the way, the Fukushima reactors were designed and built in America. Um, the Fukushima... Uh, Daiichi Unit 1 was an entirely American design. Then Daiichi Unit 2 had a little Japanese uh, uh, engineering, and finally by the time they got to Units 5 and 6, they were entirely Japanese. But this is an American design, um, not a Japanese design. And what happens is the, um, the, the designers get together and determine what they think will be the worst thing to happen. And that's called a maximum credible accident. Uh, Maggie and I actually call it the maximum cash available. Um, it's the same MCA. But what they, what they do is they'll say, well, we think the worst earthquake can be whatever and the worst tsunami can be whatever, and they design for that. But if they really looked at what the worst earthquake could be or what the worst tsunami could be, the power plant would be so expensive it could never be built. So there's this trade-off between um, what 
what scientists know uh, is likely to happen and what can be afforded to make a nuclear power plant competitive. I, on your question about the seismic issues, um, there, there's definitely seismic damage at, um, at Fukushima. Uh, there's, you can see it in the, uh, in the bracing on the towers, uh, for instance. Um, we have a report up on our site that discusses the uh, um, the seismic uh, problems that Fukushima Daiichi encountered. And we use the Daiichi experience in discussing problems at Diablo Canyon. So, if your if your listeners uh, go to um, the Fairwind site and look up an expert report that I wrote on Diablo Canyon, you can see a pretty good discussion of the seismic problems that. Um, Fukushima Daiichi encountered. Unit 1 at that Fukushima Daiichi had a, a very weird response to the initial earthquake. Um, the party line is that it withstood the earthquake and was flooded out by the tsunami. But even before the tsunami hit, there were indications on Daiichi Unit 1 that something else was wrong. Um, of course, the plant is so contaminated, you can't get back in to determine what failed. But I believe there were seismic problems at Fukushima Daiichi Unit 1 that um, that had already disabled that plant. It was the first to blow up. Um, that had already disabled that plant before the, um, the tsunami ever hit. So earthquake standards um, are um, reasonable for you know, a standard run-of-the-mill earthquake, but they really never look at the worst that Mother Nature can throw at you. The same thing with tsunamis. They had a five-meter-high tsunami wall, and it looked impressive. You know, it's, it's like a, a mini castle. But the tsunami was, um, was 15 meters. So you know, suddenly you wind up with 10 meters of water coming over the, uh, uh, the wall. Now, that wall could have been built taller, and, in fact, many scientists said it should have been built taller, but it was too expensive. And so, you know, the business of nuclear power gets into these trade-offs with safety versus expense. safety front. Um, we, of course, as uh, you know, you re- wrote, recently wrote an article, uh, you referred to uh, attempts by the Japanese government to normalize nuclear power through the 2020 Olympic bid as an atom bomb, B-A-L-M. Uh, could you maybe talk, first of all, I mean, they're, they're trying to declare it safe. And my understanding is that uh, the, the threshold for what's considered safe has been raised. Uh, could, could you uh, maybe talk about how, how that could be allowed to happen? Because it, it seems, at least the way it, it, it's presented, it seems like such an obvious uh, you know, a, a, a attempt at uh, you know, undermining uh, public safety just for the purposes of public relations. Uh, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's the crux of the problem in Japan right now. Um, the, um, 
uh, I'll, I'll talk in REM, but you can uh, people can convert to uh, to sieverts. Uh, I grew up with with REM as a me- measure of radiation. And first off, it stands for a Rankin equivalent man, and it's a radiation exposure to a 160 pound man. And women are uh, considerably more radiosensitive, and children are much more radiosensitive than a 160-pound man. So the initial standard of 100 millirem uh, was uh, was based on radiation damage to a to a man of 160 pounds. So what the um, the Japanese realized within a year, the Japanese government and Tokyo Electric realized within a year that. Um, they could never clean up Fukushima, uh, the, the prefecture, which is like a state or a province, uh, the prefecture of Fukushima, back to where it was. And where it was was around 100 millirem. Um, so what they did was they changed the standard and they made it 20 times higher or, or 2 rem. Uh, and, of course, what that does, because radiation... Damage is linear with um, with exposure. Whatever the radiation risk was at 100 millirem, it's now 20 times higher. So 20 times more people are um, are are going to experience radiation related issues, cancers, but also um, lots of other issues as well because of this change in the radiation standard. So they they increase the standard 20 fold. But, you know, in the run-up to the Olympics, it was much more than that. That was a, a financial consideration. The, the only way they could possibly afford the half a trillion dollars to clean it up was to, uh, was to raise the standard. But right after the disaster happened, um, the prime minister, Naoto Khan, was, uh, was removed. And there was a, kind of an interim prime minister. And... In uh, November and December of 2011, he declared that the plant was in cold shutdown and therefore safe. Um, cold shutdown is a term that applies to an intact nuclear reactor, not not three that have had meltdowns with holes in the bottom of them. Um, but that uh, the atomic, uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency and the State Department all climbed on that and said that they're in cold shutdown. Uh, it's, it's over. So uh, that was the first, um, uh, actually, there's a second lie. The first lie was that Tokyo Electric forbade the use of the term meltdown for five months. None of their press people uh, were allowed to mention the term meltdown for five months. And, of course, the Japanese press is... is uh, uh, captured by the uh, industry it covers, and they didn't ask the tough questions about meltdown either. What happens in Japan is if you, you're you part of the press corps covering the nuclear issue, if you ask too many tough questions, they don't invite you back to the next uh, the next, next press conference. So that was number, number one was they forbade the use of meltdown for five months, and secondly, they declared the plants to be in what's called uh, cold shutdown before the end of 2011. But then uh, Prime Minister Abe took over, and that wasn't enough. Um, he pushed very hard to get Tokyo to be the seat of the, uh, of the Olympics and the Summer Olympics 
in 2020. Um, they actually call it the Recovery Olympics. They want to show the world that they've recovered from the disaster at Fukushima. And he told the um, uh, International Olympic Committee that, um, that Fukushima was solved. Uh, and they also bribed the uh, International Olympic Committee as well. Um, some members of the, uh, the Japanese delegation um, are uh, under indictment in France for bribing the International uh, Olympic Committee. So the Olympics were placed in Japan, in Tokyo, um, because Abe wanted to show the world that uh, the radiation damage was over. And, and I would submit to your listeners that it's more than that. It's the nuclear industry wanted to portray the problem as solved, that um, nobody was going to die. Uh, look at all these lush green fields and these cattle out there grazing. Um, the problem is solved. And um, the people that disagreed were you know, radiophobes. And uh, it's, it's simply not true that the information that Dr. Kaltofen and I have found and Dr. Tim Mousseau and, and, and many others are showing that the, um, the problem is far from solved. And it's going to take uh, um, a massive amount of money to, uh, to clean the entire prefecture at levels that are safe. And it's also going to cause uh, cancers. There's, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, uh, there'll be 100,000 additional cancers in Japan. Mm-hmm. Epidemiologically, that's really tough to, to, uh, to get to because the Japanese government's gone out of its way to, uh, uh, to destroy and limit the available epidemiological information. Um, they're also not, spreading yeah. the radiation all over Japan so that um, epidemiologically, uh, you could look at Fukushima Prefecture compared to the rest of Japan and show whether or not you know, stillbirths and, and um, spontaneous abortions and, uh, um, and cancers had increased. But what the Japanese government has done is they're taking this nuclear waste and shipping it all over Japan. I was in a Tokyo uh, parking lot, and one of these little concrete bumpers that you drive the wheels up to in the parking lot, I, I put my Geiger counter on it, and it was highly radioactive. It turns out that the ash from the incinerators in Fukushima is being used to make concrete, which is then shipped all over Japan and, uh, and used in parking lots. So um, we run into a very difficult epidemiological problem um, because the data is being masked. Okay. Um, I just, in the, the few minutes we've got left, I, I, I can't resist but touch on Three Mile Island uh, since the 40th anniversary is, uh, is also this, is this uh, month, and I believe you're going to be presenting at the, the commemoration uh, in the last week of March. Uh, the general public doesn't believe there were any deaths associated with that meltdown. Uh, given that you're intimately familiar with what went down uh, 40 years ago, are, and, and you know, of course, you're going to be speaking uh, in a couple of weeks. What are some of the main takeaways the public needs to know about Three Mile Island 40 years later? I'm, I'm the keynote speaker at Penn State's uh, 40th uh, commemoration um, in in Harrisburg um, on the, on the, the 27th, which is a, a Wednesday, um, and hopefully that'll be um, filmed and, and eventually we'll have it on our site. 
But the, the takeaways are this, that um, it's the same playbook we've been discussing with Fukushima, that the people in Harrisburg and Middletown, um, Pennsylvania, should have been evacuated within um, the first three or four hours of the, uh, of the meltdown. Um, there, and there was a meltdown, there's no doubt about that. Um, but the, uh, initially the utility lied to the governor and to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Um, later, however, um, when there was no evacuation, the uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission did a, a phenomenal job of covering up for the, uh, for the company it was supposed to be regulating. Um, and this isn't just Arnie Gunderson speaking. There's a, a brilliant uh, report out by a, a guy named Dr. Henry Myers. And, and Henry was um, uh, Mo Udall's uh, science advisor. Mo Udall was a, a key senator in the 1980s. And Henry's report discusses in depth how the, the hearings about Three Mile Island uh, just obfuscated the truth and that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission allowed the uh, management of Three Mile Island to, uh, um, to, to get away scot-free when, in fact, they should have been thrown in jail. The, um, the, the people did die, and victims are being marginalized right now. Um, Dr. Steve Wing, who was an epidemiologist at UNC and a good friend of mine, um, has a, has a peer-reviewed study that shows that the, the cancer incidence in the river valley around uh, Three Mile Island is much higher than the cancer incidence further up in the hills. And that was caused because there was a temperature inversion that day, and the radiation from, from TMI laid in the Susquehanna River Valley, exposing those people, but not the people on the hilltops. So there's good data out there. We have a lot of it on our site. But you're right. The public's perception is that um, that TMI was, in a, was a non-event. Hmm. Well, I think at that we're going to have to close now. But I think if people want to get more information about some of the articles uh, that, uh, and, and videos that you've put up on uh, the uh, climate change is a false solution, uh, the Woolsey fires in California, they can go to that website, uh, fairwinds.org. That's F-A-I-R-E winds dot O-R-G. Uh, Arnie Gunderson, thank you so much for your time, sir. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. We've been speaking with Arnie Gunderson. He is the chief engineer for Fairwinds Energy Education. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week. <laughs>